0: Do you love Making Movies is Hard and you want to listen to more episodes?
1: Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month.
0: That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please.
1: But without any more blibber blabber.
0: Back to the show! You know, Making Movies is Hard. Making Movies is Hard.
1: Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, and Tubi.
0: I'm Liz Manishel, I'm a writer, director, producer, who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm currently making others. I'm in sales and a distribution consultant, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This Thursday, we have a bonus episode for you and we're going to play the interview from episode 151 with special effects master Don buys. Buys, yeah. Who came on the show to talk the shift, to talk about the shift from practical to visual effects, and he told us plenty of old stories. He didn't tell me, but he told Ulrich plenty of old stories from the making of films such as Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Starship Troopers, Ghostbusters 2, and many more. Before we get into that show, we want to draw your attention to the Patreon campaign for this podcast. Support us on Patreon, www.patreon.com MMIH podcast. It is how we keep the show running. But without any further bibble babble, here is our throwback. Here's Ulrich's throwback interview with Don Buys
2: All right, welcome to Making Movies is Hard, a podcast about the everyday struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Timothy Plain. And I'm Mark Brassell. Each week we discuss filmmaking topics and give you our point of view on them, not as experts, but as two filmmakers trying to figure it out for ourselves. And we are doing something we haven't done yet. I can't believe we haven't done this because our guest today is Don Bees, and I've worked with him for years and years now. And I didn't even click, Oh, he should be on the podcast until just like a few weeks ago. Um, but he works in, I don't even know how to say this, like practical effects, special effects in camera effects. Um, he did, he built the spirit machine device for my movie. Um, we've worked with him at the agency on some Cheeto stuff, and I just realized that we haven't really talked about like these kind of effects in the context of indie filmmaking. And then I also just noticed that Don has a new movie that he's made. So, I mean, this seems like the, like the perfect time to have you on, too. So you can talk about practical effects. You can talk about your movie and, and independent filmmaking in the Bay Area and all that stuff. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, thanks for asking me. Appreciate being here. So let's get a one minute bio from
3: you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was, uh, I, I've been in love with films since about six years old. I, I saw uh, Frankenstein, the original Boris Karloff Frankenstein, and that just fascinated me. And I just wanted to know how they did that. So I got really into the makeup aspect of it when I was really young. Um and also I was uh much older than both of you guys. Uh and I was uh uh really into the space program at the time too. So um the 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 science and technology and, and all that sort of stuff along with filmmaking was really fascinating to me. So um I got into makeup, uh like I said, uh Planet of the Apes, King Kong, all that stuff. And uh, then Star Wars came out in 1977, just at the right time for my age group. You said on Facebook
2: you were like 15 when that movie came out? 16, yeah. 16. 16. Well, wow. two, two cool. events
3: that happened uh, that same in 1977 when it came out was Star Wars came out. I had my first job. I was working at an amusement park. I'm from Chicago, so I was working at an amusement park in Chicago. And uh, it was an indoor amusement park. And they Brian De Palma came and filmed the movie called The Fury there. Um, and it's a, one of his lesser-known films. It's actually not a bad film. But um, Amy Irving is in it. Uh, Kirk Douglas is in it. I didn't meet any of those people, but I got to meet uh, the, some of the special effects guys because they got to put a ride through a window, uh, at one of the restaurant windows. So, uh, so watching that, uh, and with the like this double whammy of like, Star Wars coming out that year. It's like okay, I got to do this. This is this is this is way fun. So uh, I just really got into filming, and it, it was kind of like that golden age of that started. You know, we got Superman was right there, then then Alien, then you know, Empire Strikes right. Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, ET. You know, it just yeah. It, for it, me,
2: it was like when technology got to the point where all of a sudden you could tell these stories that you could never tell before, and then ex- that that kind of happened again with CG. But like that was like I feel like that era was the first time. You know, yeah. it launched off.
3: Well, and the difference, too, with when it was without CG, and not not slamming CG. I, I do my own 3D stuff as well. You know, I, I, I do some of that stuff myself. But the uh, there was something more magical about it. It's like, holy cow. You know, I remember going into, you know, dailies at ILM. It's like, huh, we did that. Oh, okay, that works. You know, um, so... Uh so it's almost, I know it's not, and I, like I said, I don't want to take anything away from CG artists because they're amazing, but it's almost like it's a, a lot easier now <laughs> than what, what, what was going on right. back then. But
2: I feel like the, the magic part of it is almost like stage magic. It's like it's an illusion that you're creating on a shot-by-shot basis, and whether it works or not, you can kind of see more immediately, does it look right on camera, we didn't have the technology in the '80s to paint rigs out. Right, you, know? you had to hide all that stuff in the shot.
3: Yeah, totally. It, it, yeah, I mean, there there was always that, like, okay, how are we going to do that? You know, I have to kind of deconstruct it. You know, go backwards. It's like, okay, this is what we want it to look like. How are we going to get to that point? And and then there was also the preciousness of film, you know that uh, you you weren't. It's like you know you could shoot for hours with digital stuff, but with film, it's like well you know you roll. You watch old dailies and you know where they roll and they yell action right away, you know because they don't want (laughs) they they don't want to keep eating through all that film, you know. Yeah. Uh, So it's kind of like okay, we we only have a few times to get this right, you know. So. So how did you start from your passion to get into this? Uh,
2: where were you, and what was like the first step to a career in the started?
3: Well, in uh, uh, like I said, I was doing uh, I was in Chicago, and there's at that point there was re- there was no film industry there. I mean, they just started bringing in like films like Blues Brothers there, but I had no connection into that. But it was I wanted to, like I said, I thought the makeup thing was you know there was the height of all the makeup creature stuff, you know the the Rob Bottin's and the Rick Bakers and all that sort of stuff, and uh, so I was really following those kinds of careers, and I was looking for any kind of way in. Uh, that way and uh, it wasn't until the early 80s sometime I, I met this young prodigy kid named uh, Keith Edmire who was a student of Dick Smith's and uh, who was a famous makeup artist for those that don't know uh, and uh, and Rick Baker and he you know he was um, he was in touch with those people and he got offered a job to come out to California and uh, we had done a couple projects I was doing a lot of theater and stuff in Chicago and um, he was offered a job out in California, at, I think at Rick's place, and um, and then he had heard about a job happening in Northern California w- at Chris Weylis's company f- uh, on the remake of The Fly, and um, and they, he said, hey, they're looking for people. So um, I I submitted a resume and uh, well, not resume, a portfolio really of work. They they weren't that intrigued with what I could. Uh, do from a makeup standpoint they had it covered but you know quite honestly i wasn't as good <laughs> with that Which uh, your
2: portfolio stuff that you'd done on other films or just stuff that you'd done in practice
3: in practice mainly some some theater stuff some stuff i just did as portfolio pieces yeah okay, cool. uh, and uh but uh what i did have in there what showed was a uh, mechanical ability and um uh, cause I had built, when Star Wars came out, I built my own full size radio controlled R2D2. So, um, <laughs> so they, wow. uh, um, so they, they kind of glommed onto that and Chris said, well, you can do, you know, you can do uh, mechanical work, right? You can, he says, you know how to work a lathe and a mill. And I go, oh yeah. And then I had to look up what a mill was. I didn't know what a mill was. <laughs> and, uh, and so they hired, he hired me pretty much on the spot. And um, I came out, moved out to California and I've been out here ever since. So, and through that, I made connections because a lot of the people, well, Chris himself, but a lot of the people were from uh, ILM. So a, a person that was a huge influence, real, real big mentor, and it's still a, still a very, um, a very, very good friend is John Berg. And John was a stop motion animator. He goes back to, uh, I mean, he used to do the Pillsbury Doughboy and, uh, and that sort of thing back in the 60s and uh he worked on the cantina sequence for star wars he was uh, he's you know he's one one of many of the creatures in in star wars and he's also the um stop motion animator with phil tippett of the uh the chess set from the from the original star wars yeah right and then on empire strikes back he did the walkers which is probably hands down one of my favorite sequences in film films and so to get to meet him was a huge honor and, and then to be friends with him was even better. So, uh, he's, he's really helped guided me in the early days there.
2: That's awesome. So your first movie though was The Fly?
3: Yeah, I won Academy Award. It's been downhill ever since. So, uh, <laughs>
2: but, uh, the Fly is such a good movie. Yeah. I love that movie. Yeah, yeah. It,
3: you learned a lot and I didn't get to go on set. We did all the work in California and they shot it up in Montreal, but, um, or no, Toronto. Um, but, um, but yeah, it, it it was a it was a big learning experience, and and one thing led to another, and then eventually led to you know, hey, there's somebody at ILM you should meet, and yeah, I my first job over at ILM was again because of the R2D2 connection was operating R2D2 for a series of Japanese commercials, and um, the guy that was operating it was leaving to go work for Disney. Uh, Imagineering. So, uh, they needed somebody and they knew I had done that stuff and I knew radio control and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, it, that was as simple as that. Uh, yeah, there's so many, one of the things that, you know, a lot of people have asked me over the years, how do you get in it? It's like, well, gosh, you know, I was in the right place at the right time. You know, it's, there's so many, many talented people out there. I see, especially with conventions and stuff like that. You see, you see all these, uh, people doing amazing, amazing work, much better than the work that, i've done in films and it, it, even better than some things are made for films because they're making it as a passion piece um whereas we were just like hope that it stay, it sticks together long enough to get through the shot you know so um so it's it's really fun to see pieces that i've worked on that other people have recreated it's like yeah. wow you did a much nicer job <laughs> than i did on that <laughs>
2: I like that. That Yeah, you just piece it together to, to laser that one shot. It's not built for longevity.
3: No, no, not at all. Well, it's interesting, though, on Star Wars, when we worked on the prequels, um, you know, again, the, that was the mentality on the original films. But on the right. prequels, we, we knew at that point, um, these things are going to wind up in museums and stuff, so it's like, well, maybe we better spend a little bit more time on these. So those are a little probably more <laughs> detailed than they should have been, but yeah.
2: So I know probably the highlight of your career is working on the Spirit Machine,
3: but absolutely, yeah, I know, <laughs>
2: it's, it's amazing. But can you give us just like what are give us like three of your favorite films that you've worked on, and what what did you do on those films?
3: Uh, the Fly is 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 probably one of them uh, from a a. a um, uh, because it's a first and and I, I did a lot of I did a little mechanical design again I was working closely with John Berg and a few other people that uh, where we were making the internal mechanisms for the puppets I, I worked a lot on we called it the uh, the what did we call it no. the I can't remember the big thing that he tur- Jeff Goldblum turns into at the end um, <laughs> yeah, the monster, and, uh, the monster yeah, yeah. We, no we had a name for it Brody Fly Brody yeah, no that's what they called in the in in past but we had, there was a there was a stupid name that that they came up with it at the shop. Uh anyway, and then um and then there's a bunch of stuff on it that I did that actually got cut out because of, well not because what I did was too gross It's just I think it was over the top. He, he like he 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 there's a monkey he I think it's in all the in the deleted scenes on the video on the DVD. Um he uh he tries to read reverse it by putting a cat and a monkey into uh the pods and he creates this monkey cat creature you know it's got like a head of a cat and a head of a monkey and it's all this floppy (laughs) thing.
1: oh that's cool
3: and then he beats it to death with a stick wow (laughs) and uh and then he climbs he climbs the wall and he climbs out and he's like you know lamenting his his fate and and then all of a sudden he, he he starts scratching the side of his his chest and uh and, and a little fly arm pops out of his chest and he chews it off. Oh, uh, um, cool! <laughs> so I I worked on we had two versions of the monkey cat. We had a a a, a, a um an animatronic version that that uh, you know that moved around and was puppeteered, and then we had a a, a version that was. Basically, just flopped around mechanically. It had a motor in it that flopped around. They pulled it on a string and I worked on that. And, uh, and then the fly arm that comes out. And then later in the film, he, he, when he spits up on things, he has a tongue that came out that slurped it up. I made the tongue. All that stuff wow. got cut. That's well, wow, it's so. wow, crazy. Yeah. So
1: um, anything that we remember specifically from the movie that didn't get cut that um, you you're involved in with that?
3: Yeah. Well, the big creature at the end. Yeah. Oh, okay. That was, uh, that was the only thing I think that I worked on that made it in the film. Well, there might have been a couple other others. Uh, others <laughs> it's like welcome
2: them. to movie business. <laughs> yeah. All the stuff you know, that you I, worked on got cut.
3: I didn't mind. I mean, like, lots of times over the years, people say, "Oh, you know, you make that something like that, and they blow it up or whatever." It's like, yeah. Well, it's cathartic to it uh, on one hand because it's like. Sometimes he's just like, I want to, can I press the button? Uh, but uh, other times it's, it, you know, it's like, it, you know, that's what it was made for. You know, that's what we figure. you know, so... It, right. It, yeah, the, it, that stuff never bothered me, and and they were good editing choices. I felt on the fly. I mean, they they you know they just slowed down the movie and everything. And it was gross enough anyway, so it didn't need this. The rest of this oh my god, stuff. It's right. so disgusting. <laughs> but
1: then for like those kinds of props, like let's say the the cat monkey, for instance, like does that just get destroyed because it's like not made to last, or is that preserved somewhere in a shelf that we could? I- Think,
3: it. <laughs> yeah, I think actually there's a collector in LA, It's an old friend of a lot of these guys like uh, of Dennis Muren and and Chris Wales, John Berg, Phil Tippett. Um and uh his name is Bob Burns, he lives in Burbank. And I think he has it because I think when Chris closed down his shop, um uh, he gave all that stuff to Bob. Oh, that's um, cool. so <clears throat> some some stuff gets pulled apart because you you know the the parts inside are more valuable, but I don't, I don't think the Monkey Cat did. Uh, um and the, the only problem with all the creature stuff is that the foam latex decays after some time. Right, right. And uh, so that, that goes bad and it essentially just crumbles. It turns to like uh, breadcrumbs. It just falls apart. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, the um, I, I don't think it, it. it's just, I mean, some stuff does get destroyed. You know, we make, like for Star Wars, we made really, really big, big, big things and they um, and can't store them anywhere, but. Uh, but yeah they they try not to for the most part that's cool so the fly is one what are the other two I I have one specific question (laughs) I knew Albert was going to nerd out about the fly this is one of my
1: favorite movies um, and I'm just curious like I think I know the answer but I want to know anyways um like and working on that project or a project like that, like do you? What's your interaction with the director? Like, do you get to work with Cronenberg at all, or are you just getting notes like passed down from your boss?
3: Yeah, I would. Yeah, I was kind of low level. We had thirty, I think, thirty people working at Chris's company. Cwi was the name of the company, and um, and uh, and like I said, we didn't go on on set. The majority of us went. on. I think, only five people went up on set. Uh, so um I didn't have any interaction with him. He, did, I did meet him. He came by. I got to meet him, but oh, that's no, cool. I, I, I didn't, and Jeff Goldblum as well got to meet him because he came oh, down, cool. by, came came down for a casting session. I mean, he was really not well known at that point. I mean, he, I think he had done The Big Chill. You know, that was his biggest film he had done. M- maybe at that point. Uh, Earth Girls Are Easy. Maybe. Yeah, it might have been around the same time. No, I think that was after because he met Gina Davis on. Or, no, oh. wait, no, wait, you're right. I think he did that. Okay. That's where he met Gina, and then they were a couple for The Fly. That's how she got the part, apparently. That's oh, story.
1: interesting. So, yes.
3: um, but yeah. So, yeah, there you go.
1: Yeah, going back to Timothy's, um, you know, timeline, like, what, what, after you work on The Fly, is you immediately go to ILM, and then, like, what's the next movie you work on at
3: ILM? I, well, I was, um, I got uh, hired as the R2 operator, and then through that, I was unofficially and then officially the archivist for Lucasfilm, so I was taking care of all the, the props and costumes and stuff like that. And then through that, through John Berg, actually, the fir- uh, I I got to puppeteer for one week on Witches of Eastwick uh, for a sequence uh, cool. on that film. Um, and again, that was like thirty puppeteers for this one puppet. It, they they needed so many people on it. And um, and then what was the first film I worked on? It um, I. I can't remember now. I think it might. Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> uh, it was. Pull uh, well, up your IMDb page. It, I'm
1: it, it, it says Indiana Jones and the Last oh, Crusade. Oh, yeah, there you go. That's or, what it was. Or yeah. the Fly 2. I, they're about the, they're the same year. So Yeah,
3: Fly 2. That's right. I worked on Fly 2. And then uh, then we had a crew of, uh, of CWI people that came over to work on Indiana Jones, Last Crusade. So I got pulled in to work on that. And then I, the, from that, I got to go on Ghostbusters two for a little bit, and uh, and then I, uh, let's see, I, I, now I worked on a I, what I, I, the the creature stuff started dying off because, um, well, Chris's comp- shop closed, and ILM really wasn't known for creature stuff, although they did some. Uh, so you know, a lot of that work, the bigger creature stuff, was going to L.A. to places like Rick Baker's and um, and Stan Winston. Yeah, I was about to say so. Stan Winston. Yeah, Wait, yeah. So, I, I, who did all the creatures for Star Wars then? If
2: ILM what, wasn't
3: uh, well, in the original one uh, on Jedi, um, Phil Tippett they put together a Creature Shop at at ILM for that, and then they shipped the stuff overseas. Uh, but uh, on ep- Episode One was Nick Dudman. Uh, on episode two it was, I, I can't I can't remember the name of the company. Uh, the, the guy uh, Jason somebody. Um, they hired somebody local in Sydney, Australia and episode three was Dave and Lou Elsie uh, who who were doing Farscape in Sydney at the time. so
1: I just saw Dave and Lou. Oh were they the directors of of your movie right?
3: They were yeah, 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 yeah that's th- why yeah. I recognize the names yeah. okay
1: yeah so yeah
3: they've been good friends.
1: I'm sure everyone's dying to know. What did you do on Any Jones
3: and the Last Crusade? Uh, well, mainly I worked on uh, what's called Donovan's Destruction, so the guy that drinks from the wrong grail. Um, ah, yes. And, uh, and uh, we, we did a, a – that was actually the first time I was involved with something that was going to be computer-generated uh, involved. Um, where uh, we made three phases of his destruction. It was a it was a mechanical puppet of him writhing around and and skin shriveling and eyeballs you know shriveling up and that sort of thing. So we had three stages of the, of that demise, and it was it started out with a life cast of him going to the first to the f- a first step, and then we had a second dummy that uh the mechanical uh head and arms that we put onto the thing and it took it from there to the next step and then there was a third version of it that took it all the way to the skull and then the computer generation morphing which was real popular it had just been done for the first time on uh, Willow. Mm-hmm.
2: That was um, a huge deal. I
3: it was. That. It was a yeah, it was a, it was an amazing sh- I remember the amazing shot of that. And uh and um yeah, they blended the three uh, together, so so that was, and it's so funny because you know now we'd never have the time. I think I worked with six or eight months or something on that project. It was a small team of us that that worked on it. Uh, Stefan Dupuy, who was the makeup artist on the fly, won the Academy Award with Chris on the Fly, was heading it up, and uh, we had like six or eight months on it. And now, I mean, we'd be lucky to get three weeks <laughs> to do something like that right. if, if right. we even did it you know <laughs> right. uh but uh yeah we worked on that and then so and because of that then there was like these little things here and there I got one day we were working uh, as a Saturday Mike McAllister is a visual effects supervisor um came over and said who here's not got their hands full right now and uh, and I, I, I raised my hand and he says come with me so I, we walked over to another stage and there was him a cameraman an assistant cameraman, and and, uh, and that was it. And a couple lights and a camera. And he says we got to do an insert shot. And uh, so he dressed up. He put out, he's putting on this you know Nazi outfit. And then Duncan, the assistant cameraman, he he, he tells him to do put this costume on. And I was supposed to wave uh, a flag to make uh, the uh, the the uh, light look like firelight. And it was for the Hitler signing the diary insert. <clears throat> and um,
1: Oh, wow. Duncan
3: is a, a t- much taller guy, and he couldn't fit in the jacket, so we swapped. I got to wear the jacket, so I was Indiana Jones in that shot. Um, awesome, so, that's and really I'll, cool. Yeah, so they there was an insert shot of the snake popping up at River Phoenix at the opening of the film when he when he's in the train. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, um, classic. Yeah, and it, it was in the water, and it popped up. Um, I puppeteered that. That wasn't River Phoenix. I was a stand-in. Um, oh, but, that's awesome. Uh, yeah
2: oh man okay last movie we're gonna talk about then we're gonna jump into more broad one one last question (laughs) i gotta gotta know
1: so (laughs) for (laughs) (laughs) for the the um you know the the big shot you did for india jones like the changing and the morphing when he when he eat drinks the cup um was there any stop-motion element to that or is it simply taking your your models and then blending them using CGI?
3: No, well, sort of. Uh, more time lapse than anything. One, the, the, all the dummies were on a, there was a body with, uh, with the head motion. It, all, it was all on a motion control mover. Because not only did the cameras move in the motion control world, is that you can make the models move, and and that's how they did the original uh, some of the stuff for um, Dragon Slayer. They had the, the the Dragon Mover, they called it, and so they had stepper motors and everything that activated things. So we did that. We incorporated that into the body of the of uh, Donovan, and and those moved around. And that was repeatable, so we shot it with the one head and you know the one setup, and then did the second head and and shot it top to bottom, and then did the third head, and then they were able to cut evenly between the three because everything lined up, and then blend the the two together. But the the third one had the the skin that like started shriveling up, and so because it was a computer controlled thing, we could shoot it at different frame rates or different speeds. And uh, they shot it much slower, and they had—I um, I think it was Shrinky Dinks. You know, I don't know if you remember that toy—the uh, stuff you put in an oven and they, and you know they they shrivel up. Uh, we made a, a whole bunch of those uh, and glued it on the skin, and then heated it with a uh, with a uh, uh, big propane tank heater, and um, and shot it really slow, and so the skin started shriveling up. So that actually looks kind of stop motiony. Uh, but it's more time-lapse than anything wow
1: that's an amazing answer to my question Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right we can go we can move on okay i was gonna
2: <laughs> the last movie i was gonna choose was galaxy quest and then while Ulrich was talking i noticed that you worked on fire in the sky and i just wanted to stop for a second and say that alien sequence and fire in the sky was one of the scariest alien sequences i ever saw
3: it's real disturbing isn't it's it it's very that, yeah. disturbing yeah I got to with uh, a guy named howie weed uh we we did all the stuff that he's getting uh done to him, so they had done the puppets and they had a team that did all the puppets and everything like that and then howie and I were tasked with making the experiments you know and so somebody i, I might have been howie said uh, uh or maybe it was in the script I can't remember but it's like he gets sucked to the table like the 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 sheet gets sucked around him and oh yeah and we're like well, I I said well you know it's like a, a vacuum form machine. And everyone is afraid to put some you know like they, everyone thought that you'd pop your eardrums or something if we put somebody on the vacuum form table you know and suck suck the rubber sheet down around them. And I said I'll try it. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we had a four four foot a four-foot-by-four-foot four form machine at ILM, and I laid on it, and they, I put some cotton buds in my ears to make sure that I didn't pop and laid down. Nothing happened and sucked it around to me. They said, okay, let's do this. So we made a table that had a air tank that sucked all the air out of it. And the interesting thing was D.B. Sweeney, who's the actor that mostly that happens to, was terribly claustrophobic, so he didn't want to do the scene. So we got one of my my good friends at ILM at the time, it's still, I mean, you know, I still work with him to this day. Nelson Hall, he said well, he kind of looked like you, know, physically, sort of, kind of like under a rubber sheet. He would look like DB Sweeney, so he did it. So all those, all that stuff under the sheet is uh, is Nelson, and we worked on the little mechanical arm that comes down and 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 uh, you know, just going to put the needle in his eye. We made the little clamps that went on his face, and some of that is a combination of Nelson, and some of that is come is is DB.
2: That's cool. Ulrich, have you ever seen that movie?
1: No, you know, it's on my watch list, um, but I haven't seen it yet. So I don't remember the movie being
2: that good, but that sequence in particular is super great.
3: No, the movies the movie sucks. That oh the, really? The, yeah, yeah <laughs> just, just skip to the, to the just end. Just get to the yeah. You probably can find it on YouTube It's, or like, it's like thirty minutes
2: in or something. That's just it's the alien abduction. Yeah, it's a long thing.
3: sequence. It's about twenty minutes. And yeah, we we did it all at ILM, which is great. We built these. It was really cool sets, it, particularly the uh, where he wakes up in a uh, in like this pod thing was on our main stage at ILM. I don't know if you've ever been. It's a thirty two ten main stage now. Oh yeah yeah
1: yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. and
3: we, it took up the entire set I mean it took up the entire space it was was, and then they made it look even bigger you know with uh matte paintings and stuff that's awesome
1: um. So, Timothy, the last movie you want to talk about is Galaxy Quest. I would have picked Starship Troopers, but we could talk Galaxy <laughs> no, no, Quest go, if you
2: want. Go Starship Troopers. <laughs> All right. Starship actually, troopers. that's a that that was kind of a transition movie because because the I wanted to say was like you entered this field in like '86, roughly, right? And
3: yeah, ten 85. years
2: later is when Jurassic Park comes out, and that's when things start going in the CG direction. And Starship Troopers was kind of like where phil tippett broke off from ilm and then that was his first movie on his own right
3: yeah i actually i think he did i i think he had had split off by that point because i think he did robocop off on his own oh, so right. he, w- yeah. he was coming in and working when they needed him but then he had his own shop doing stuff so and he still has that shop by the way the the uh where he did robocop i mean he still has that that facility the one yeah, in berkeley awesome. Yeah, he, he, uh, he, he's where he's doing all his mad god stuff. Um, I was just there actually in January because he, his, his, a couple of his guys helped us on our film. But, um, the, uh, uh, the, he, he was, I think he was hired as a, uh, on Jurassic Park as a, you know, uh, well, he was going to, they were going to do the stop motion. And then, and I remember actually the, there was a big secret that at ILM at the time, if, unless you were, Uh, you were uh, working on the film. You couldn't go to the dailies uh, to see um, for Jurassic Park, uh, Jurassic Park dailies. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, of course that made everyone want to go see it more. So I knew the, (laughs) I knew the projectionist. So he he allowed me to sneak into the projection booth and I got to see some of the, some of the, The shots and it's like holy cow that's it you know creature work is done (laughs) (laughs) no reason to do that anymore. Uh,
2: The if you watch the probably like the behind the scenes or the um, extras on the the DVD of that movie it's pretty amazing. Yeah, watch like the Phil, Phil Tippett's stop motion animation for like the main sequences in it, and you can see how like Phil Tippett really was. The person who brought those dinosaurs to life, because a lot of the things that he chose in the stop motion animation as moments ended up in the CG characters or the puppets or, you know, it's exactly how they ended up
3: shooting it. So, yeah, well, they also I mean, he did. He had done those stop motion sequences as well. And it was some of the nicest, cleanest stop motion I had seen, too. Uh, I think those are out there on the internet. Um,
1: yeah, because they replaced it with the CGI, right? Like they didn't. Well, not so much thing. replaced
3: it; they redid it. But they redid yeah, it they, right. yeah. But I mean, he had done some early, like the attack on the car. You know, the T Rex yeah. attack on the car when you first see the T Rex, yeah. Yeah. And so. yeah. Uh, and, um, and it, it's it's really nice stuff in there. And it was interesting how they they made the blend <clears throat> for the. Because they wanted to use these stop-motion animators, Randy Dutra, Tom Sanamon, uh, guys that had been around for a while, but they didn't have the computer skills, so they made that digital input device or dinosaur input device, the thing. It was like this, it was an armature, it was a stop-motion armature with a bunch of potentiometers attached to the joints. So it basically did the motion capture for the, so they they actually did do stop-motion.
1: And then they used that. And um, they used that as the the motion. CGI, right? Yeah. So that's why it looks so good. Um, yeah plus and then
3: i mean phil's just this master at you know movement and 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 that sort of thing and they i remember they even had they even had uh, they brought in mime, a mime or a, a dancer or something like that and they they did um They did dinosaur classes where they everyone ran around acting like raptors (laughs) and stuff like that.
1: Well, I bet you a million dollars they didn't do any of that stuff for Jurassic Park two or three because (laughs) you can tell that like the 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 effects are just not the same um, on those sequels. You know.
3: Well, uh, yeah. Well, I think Phil was still involved with at least two. I know. Oh, really? Yeah, but but uh, you know, it it it, what what happens I think with the technology too is that it, it. after a while, they go. Okay, well, you did it, and you learned. You had, uh, particularly Jurassic Park, was a watershed moment for that whole thing, and and uh, uh, the the um, they they had. They had all this technology to learn, but then they knew it. And then they went in the next one. They like, Hey, wait a minute. You know, and then this is when the producers come in and go, Hey, well, can you do it in half the time? And, and yeah. I think that's what's, uh, that's, right that's what suffers is that, uh, like I said earlier, you know, we had nine, eight months to do a, uh, this, this thing that, like I said, you'd barely get two or three weeks now to do. And, um, and it just, they, they just figure out oh, the technology is quick. You could just, you know, press a button, right? You know, so y- you just don't have the time. Yeah. I don't think to do it. Well, and t- t- everything t- has, everything has effects in it now. I mean, even as simplest of films has effects.
2: Oh, I know. It's funny when you watch just like a comedy movie and then at the end there's like uh, credits for visual effects. And you're like, really? Where, where yeah. was that? And they're like <laughs> painting out skies or, you know, changing streets. And Yeah. It's yeah. Just like, just shoot it right in the first place. Yeah. So, just
1: about Starship Troopers, really quick. Like, what what did you do for that? Did you make a bunch of the bugs, or was it some other miniatures? Or no.
3: Like- by that point, I was into uh, m- the model making, um, and um, they we did the lunar ring, what's called the lunar ring. You know, the thing that uh, it's actually very briefly in the film. The the it's where all the the battleships are. Like right, right and, right, and um the one group of kids flies up and she, they do this uh like ride through the interior the the lunar ring and then go up a shaft and then come out and then they you see the whole thing around it so i i, I supervise those two models uh the interior flying through it and then and then the exterior sequence of it so
1: awesome that's cool, man.
3: The majority, well, Phil did uh, all the uh, bugs. Oh, okay. And cool. uh, and I think uh, some guys have spun off from Tippett's uh, ADI. I think it was did the full size bugs. Down oh, in LA. cool. And then uh, Boss Films was it Boss. But there was a, another effects house that mainly got most of the the visual effects shots. And then we, uh, ILM, got the, le- not the leftover, the spillover, you know, so we did, uh, we did a bunch of shots, but it wasn't the bulk of the work. And that, you know, it's funny, I think it was around uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, uh, they started uh, really um, divvying up the work among many different um, effects houses, you know, at one time, you know, ILM would do them all, or Boss Films would do all the shots, but, but they uh, started uh, realizing, well... You know they could split it up because there, there's so many work, so many shots going into these things.
1: So. Right. Nowadays, you see like you know like five or six different visual effects companies um, or special effects companies too
3: on a movie, and it's sure. like, yeah,
1: well, we just did that one part with the hand,
3: and then yeah. we just yeah, did that like, one part with that thing, you know, or so. someone did all the cleanup or something like that. Right. Yeah. Right. Right.
2: Well, we've been talking a lot about practical effects and special effects. Is that the correct term for this? The stuff that happens in camera. As opposed well, to visual yeah, you know,
3: effects, it, it I, I it, again in in the time I was around, it, it went from I think uh, everything was just special effects, you know, it, uh-huh. uh, you know, and and whether it was in camp because I mean, it, you know, there was always these, uh, you know, uh, uh, like map painting would still be a special uh, effect, yeah. Or- or- Uh, matte paintings, yeah, even, even compositing was considered a special effect. And then I think that somewhere along the line, I think it's probably around Jurassic Park era that they started going, well, let's call the computer stuff visual effects and, and the, and, and now special effects kind of, um, kind of connotates the physical effects on the set on the day. So like exploding a car or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, something like that. So uh so you have a special effects coordinator that's on the set that does, is responsible for all those. I've also heard of mechanical effects, you know, referred to mechanical effects. Mm. So.
2: What about practical effect? That's what we say in advertising.
3: Yeah, well, again, it I think it's yeah, it's yeah, it's a, it's a stuff that you can get away with on set on the day, you know. Um like like you were alluding to earlier, it's the, the magic, you know, it's like the the stage magic actually. Yeah, the whatever. illusion. Mhm.
2: Although nowadays it's like it's like we do um, some puppet work for uh, my agency, and I know in the old days, you know, you had to hide the rigs for the the puppeteers. But now, like every commercial that I've ever shot that has a puppet in it, the puppeteers are like in the shot. Like they're mm-hmm. wearing black. There, you can see all the wires that are holding the puppet, and then in post we paint them out.
3: Yeah, and that, well, that's uh, I mean. It, again, some of this stuff is—it's just, just easier to do it that way, isn't it? The, but the, yeah, um, I you know we used to do all sorts of stuff where you'd have to hide cables and you know hide the person and
2: right like Yoda, uh, you, he's more like a muppet where you always have to kind of hide the the puppeteer in every right. single shot, right?
3: Well, they, and they, they built the sets just like what they do in the Muppets and with Yoda and they built the sets up higher, you know, so the, the Frank Oz in this case would be standing underneath it and, and people are walking around it. Um, That's
2: so wild to think. Like I heard that
3: same, um, that same
2: technique was used in gremlins and there's so much of that movie that has gremlins in it. So that means like pretty much almost all the sets were built higher up. Right.
3: Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think there was also a lot of stuff, though, is just wire. You know, where they were wire wire rigs, and they were almost marionetted or, or rod puppeted. You know, that sort of thing. So they're off to the side. But yeah, I mean, like in the, in the theater, no, there's no seats in any of the theater. That's all people. You know, laying on the floor. There's great shots of Chris and his team laying on the floor. <laughs> uh, you know with and they all had three puppets they had a puppet on either hand and they had a puppet on their head <laughs> so they could all they they could maximize the amount of puppets they had so That's so funny um
2: have you besides my film have you worked on other indie films
3: here and there yeah the uh, in the uh, gosh late 80s or something there was a filmmaker up here and he's he's moved on to do some other stuff some less well is there still independent films so a guy named um Parker, Jonathan Parker, uh, and um, he uh, he did a a feature film about a comedy about golfing, <laughs> and um, and so I did a bunch of practical effects for that where you know we had like flying golf balls and all sorts of things that that happened on the set um so that was my first foray into something outside of the ilm cwi families um have you been approached by indie filmmakers
2: and they just didn't like have enough money or they didn't know what went into it and you had to just say you know what you, you just can't afford me or you can't use me
3: yeah that's uh, i have been approached here and there and not only just bay area stuff but uh, outside and uh, you know i'll, I'll s- certainly help come up with a an approach and that sort of thing but uh typically just like my film nobody has any money you know and uh <laughs> yeah. and uh, so um so it's like well you you know you can't you can't really afford that <laughs> you know yeah, well, uh well so. you were so kind to me like when i came to you with the spirit
2: machine i think i had like a list of things that i needed and then uh you and your wife sat down with me and just kind of said, you know, what? if we were to actually do this, you know, it would cost you like $40,000 and you can't yeah. afford that. So given what your budget is, here are the things that we can do.
3: Yeah. And that's what we've tried to do with other filmmakers as well. Uh, the thing about spirit machine, I mean, it was, it was an intriguing enough project and it was a cool, it was a, I, li- I like the concept of, of making the machine. So that's what drew me to it as well. So, um, so that you know that it's like oh that that would be fun to work on so that's been the mantra for a lot of the projects i've worked on it's you know um that you know it's like oh if it intrigues me then i'll be interested in doing it
2: and so let's talk about that for
3: a second cuz it is interesting like did, was there
2: anything that i did right in approaching you cuz i didn't know you when i came to you and talked to you about this i don't even know how i found you i think i'd probably just google searching people that did practical effects in the bay area um, yeah. I know I had the, I don't know if you remember, but I did have concept art created. Do you, yes. did that I help remember. at all?
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I uh, the, the, and it was evocative. It was nice and, and evocative of it. And I, I think concept art goes a long way, uh, to, to selling an idea, uh, Personally, I mean, as as a filmmaker, I, I, I say that as well, and um, certainly it, I, I, my approach to things I, and other other people that have done work like my like I do have done, um, is is might be different, but um, I, I I like I like to get a concept piece and and then. Uh, and then take let my let go with it from there you know um there's always a danger of a concept piece people being too locked into it and when you when you've got a a, a nice big budget then you could make it exactly like the concept piece right. but then there's other times like okay i just want this feel which is i think what you, you might have said
2: that's what we ended up talking about i said here's the concept art but you know obviously we can't just build whatever we want so you know let's get as close to this. And then you went and scavenged. What, who's the guy that you work with? Was his name? Peter? Peter. Peter yeah. So you and know Peter yeah. and you guys scavenged a whole bunch of stuff. And I was always, I was amazed. I remember when I saw it for the first time, you explained to me what things are. You're like, this is a, an orange juicer and this is an old piece of a camera. And this is just a jar. And you guys just found stuff that kind of like would fill in for some of the pieces that was in my concept art. And you captured the spirit of it without copying it. Exactly.
3: Yeah, and and that's again personally for me, that's a, a, a fun to do it that way. Um, you know, I, I hate being locked into. It's like it's got to look exactly like this. Even even if you look at the original like concept stuff for for Star Wars and stuff like that, it, everything caught the feel the original film. It is everything caught the feel of those uh, those con- that concept art, but they're not exactly that. I mean, even stuff like R two D two and C three P O deviated. Uh, immensely from the from the concept art, but they still caught that uh, that feeling, and even spaceships, uh, and even at ILM when when I was working on on different things, you know, they, they have this sketch, and it's like, okay, yeah, that's a good starting point, you know, and then we we'd go off and do that. I did the uh, Vader helmet for that goes on to Darth Vader, Anakin Skywalker, and and Revenge of the Sith, and the the Ryan Church had created this um, beautiful. Piece of concept art, but it it was interesting. In that case, it wasn't like what I always thought it should look like. So I said, "Okay, well, can I use this as a guide?" <laughs> and uh, and and he said, "Sure." And he was really good about it. And um, uh, and you know, we kind of worked together. And and you know, he he talked. And this is, I think, how like a director should talk to actors as well is you talk about the feeling the mode the mood that that you want to to create and 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 that's how we talked about it you know okay so it should look painful going on it should look uncomfortable you know so we i had put like sp- Pointy things in there that, that look like, okay, it would go on really easy, but coming off, you'd rip the flesh off your face and stuff, you know, things like that we were, we were looking at. And they had, they had the big screens and then there's this breathing device, you know. So it was, it was all talking in, um, in, in mood and, and, um, and, and feeling of, of what the piece should be. And, um, and I was really happy with how, how it came out and i, I thought i hope he was too <laughs> so. you never ask you don't say are you happy with it <laughs> no but at that point it's too late
2: <laughs> i learned in talking to you because i think my hope when i first started spirit machine was that a lot more stuff would be practical effects and then mm-hmm. what i found out that is just because there's so many man hours involved and you need, you know, bigger and bigger teams, the more complicated it gets. It just got too expensive for me. And I think you even told me, like, you're finding that you're it's hard to compete with, with computer graphics because sometimes the computer graphic, you just need, like, one person to, like, sit at a computer and do it. And it just it's just their time and there's no mate- cost of materials, right? right? And so it can sometimes be cheaper to do things in CG.
3: It does, and it can, and it can also come back and haunt you. I think about. It. I think you might have. <laughs> yeah. I think you might have had that problem I, on yours. Yep, I did. Uh, because you, there was there was a few things. I think that you know, in reg- again, it, 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 in theory, if you're getting your work for free or at a greatly reduced price, then that might be the way to go. But well, I mean, other, I was it, getting the work done for
2: free, but then when it wasn't getting done, I did have to put more money to get it finished
3: yeah yeah so it's like i could have just
2: dedicated that money up front probably saved myself a year at least in the post-production process Given it to you and done some stuff on set
3: right exactly yeah so like yeah placing things on on the wall and you know little devices and stuff like that interactive lighting you know that that could have gone a long way because by that point i think it would it, it was in it was uh it became uh in a sense, more difficult to do it after the fact because you had to, you know, you had to do a lot more to it than you normally would have. Um, uh, yeah, but, um, like I said, if you, if you, if you're getting it for free and you can afford the time of waiting on someone else's schedule, again, I have that experience with our, with our film, uh, that, uh, that, you know, if you can afford that time, then, uh, you can uh, then that is a, that is a way to go it, uh, yeah unfortunately I mean the practical effects stuff it, it, it's just not it's just not enough work out there as you know as there once was certainly not as much in the bay area anymore so there's because it's not the shops that there were yeah well from my experience it just
1: seems like you know the amount of i don't i'm sure we just said this but like the man hours required for special effects is the big the big thing because like you know building it and then
3: testing it and making sure it works it's like that takes such a long time you know and also the on the on the day you know because right. you're you, you know it, it's it's Inevitably, even on the biggest budget films, they wait till the you know, we're shoot you start shooting at eight o'clock in the morning and at seven o'clock they de- in the evening they decide, Okay, now we're gonna do the effect shots. Right. And you, you have twenty <laughs> minutes to get it right. right. And, and and so many of the things it's like, well you're, you're going to use a fraction of this. You're going to use frames of the shot, you know, and you have to get the right frames and you might have to do it 20 times to get it right, you know, and, um, and inevitably. So you have this crew standing around, you know, waiting and, and that's just eating up money. So it, it really, it, it's, it's really a, a dance between, you know, the, the experience of a director, uh, you know, a cinematographer. They, they really need to be involved. And uh, and the effects person as as to what you can do and what you can't do, and then given the time that on the day that you have it,
1: yeah. So. Like for for my short film, my first one that I made, that it was actually at the same time Timothy made the Spirit Machine. I had uh, my monster was practically made. Like we had a you know a mannequin head, and we like dipped it in you know ooze to make it look black, and we did the the whole like ending of the movie basically. Practically, and then in the end, we ended up. Since I had a couple shots that were completely CGI, we ended up having to, you know, blend the two. So then, yeah. you know, in the end, like some of the shots that we did all practically ended up being, you know, like fused with with visual effects to like make it match the the CGI shots. You know, because if you had kept it all practical the whole time, the there is no way to make it seem like the CGI was part of the same creature, you know. Mm-hmm. Um but I just think that like taking the time and doing the the practical just looks so much cooler, you know? And it seems like there's a big passion for it now. Like you see a lot of movies and, and a lot of of uh, projects coming out that are are doing practical
3: stuff. So, I don't know if yeah. you see that too. Or- yeah, it it's kind of bragging rights is like, "Hey, look what we did." I I think the, the the one that was interesting was Force Awakens. Um there was such a huge backlash against the prequels and in many ways, rightly so. I mean, the movies weren't that good, but but uh, but there was a there was a marketing push at Lucasfilm and ILM because they were moving into this digital realm, and 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 they really wanted to be the the forefront of like, hey, look at what we can do digitally. So there was this marketing push at ILM to say, talk about all the digital stuff they did, and completely ignore all the the practical or the miniature effects that were being done. Oh, yeah. And, and in in the prequels, there were more, I think on, on Revenge of the Sith, there were more models made for Episode 3 than there were in the entire original uh, trilogy. Oh, just really? Just on that one film, wow. yeah. We had almost, at one point, 95 model makers working. I mean, originally they only had like 10. Um. Wait a second, the original Star Wars,
2: like Episodes 4 through... Six only had 10 model makers. Yeah, I, think the,
3: I think the original Star Wars had <laughs> 8 or amazing. 10 or something like that. That you can
2: make a movie of that scale with just 10 model
3: well, makers. Well, y- if you look at the building where where Empire Strikes Back was done, uh, uh, you, you, well, you're going to be at the 30 to 10 tomorrow, but D-Building was made in the front half of that building, uh, of that building on Kerner Boulevard. Uh, all of Empire Strikes Back was done on that front half of that. All the visual effects were done in the front half of that one building with a hundred people, maybe. Wow. Um, wow. S- shows so you be, if you're just resourceful,
2: you can make some amazing stuff.
3: Yeah. Well, and that's, that's why I'm, I always was surprised that they, uh, with, uh, with digital effects, they haven't kind of taken that same mantra. Uh, so, you know, cause there's a lot of, Excellent, excellent, you know, digital effects artists out there. I, I think the other thing that was it, when, uh, back then is like you'd have people like Dennis Muir and, and Ken Ralston and those guys. They they could do kind of anything. You know, Dennis and Ken used to do stop motion as well. They could shoot, they could, you know, they could set up the shot, they could light it, and they, you know, they probably could edit and composite it. I don't know. But, uh, you know, so you, you had this, um, you had people that kind of did everything and they were passionate about it. I mean, that's what, you know, it's like, yeah you learn you want to do it it's how you figure out to do it and uh i think now that there's the technique not that people can't do a lot of stuff it's just that there's now the idea that you compartmentalize everybody okay you're just a view painter you're just a modeler you're just an animator and um and they don't they don't allow people to you know to, to kind of do the whole shot from start to finish like they used to. Um, so, um, uh, but yeah, it, uh, we did a lot of practical effects on, on the, the prequels. It, it, there's a lot of sets built, uh, you know, there was a, a Topoka city in I think episode two, uh, attack of the clones was all blue screen set. And the, the, but the set they're in is a model. And so they, they kind of focus Theed city is all a model. Um, so, we, we worked on those films, I, I think I, I worked on each film for at least a year and a half, if not two years. Um, and I wasn't the only one, you know, it was a team of a whole bunch of us that were working on them. Uh, and so, but they, 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 they kept talking about the digital aspect of it. So when they went to Force Awakens, they they decide to use it as a marketing tool, and again, my my opinion is like, well, look, you know, we we they want to distance themselves so much from the prequels that doing <laughs> the opposite. Look how much stuff we did in camera. <laughs> look at all the practical effects. Well, the thing is, they didn't do all practical effects. They had creatures with digital faces. They, they none of the space battles were practical. Right, We right, at least right. on episode one, those those are spa- those space battles were models. Oh so, really? We'll, oh yeah. that's cool. So. Um, so yeah, I mean we built spaceships uh, for episode 1. We didn't do it for episode 2 and 3. Mainly we we're doing environments and sets and miniatures, but So you're saying uh, it's all
2: PR spin that we think that the new Star PR Wars spin. now have more practical effects than them.
3: Yeah, there, there's a there's a video <laughs> going <funny>. around uh, <laughs> I, I just saw recently on Facebook uh, within the last couple of weeks that shows a bunch of shots from the prequels that show how much model work was done on it. They didn't get them all right. There, there weren't, they're, they're not all correct, but, but for the, but yeah, it it was a lot of practical effects. And there still is a lot of practical effects out there. I mean, it makes sense. I I think there is a bit of lazy filmmaking out there where it's like, Oh, we'll just shoot it now and fix it later. And, It doesn't yield Um, the best
2: results. If you're not planning for it, like even with when you're working with CG, you have to plan for it. Ulrich and I just did an episode where we talked about somebody trying to pull off a visual effect and we were we're trying to figure out what's the best way to do it. And really, it just comes down to like thinking about it and planning for it and making sure that if you are adding elements in post, that you're shooting uh, everything on set as if it's there so yeah. you know wind effects and lights and you know whatever it is to like kind of make it feel like once you composite that, that thing in there that it feels like it's in the room with those people
3: yeah we we just uh, again on our film we we wanted to we have a sequence where it's there's a, a storm going on outside we wanted to put um lightning effects after the fact into into this one s- sequence and and again at the time we didn't even think about it at the time it was like oh we should put we should have you know strobe light or something going on but uh, but then there's a the whole timing issue and editing yeah you, know, you have to work in that into the editing so it's probably not something we would have done anyway, but we thought oh we could just do it afterwards well it was pretty hard to make a convincing looking lightning you know hit <laughs> yeah that's tough. Uh, that that's all interactive light yeah. you know without wasting a lot of time on the shot and after a while we are just like, you know what it doesn't need it <laughs> we'll just have the sound of the thunder outside and you know that there's a lightning storm out there yeah. So. Um, Do you have time to hang out with us for like
2: another half an hour? Absolutely. Awesome. Good. Yeah. Cause I love talking about this stuff. This is like why I got right. into filmmaking was <laughs> the intersection of the technology with the storytelling. Like I love all this stuff and this, and this is also why I ended up doing the spirit machine. Um, and I think probably I, I fell a little bit too deep into falling in love with the, the, tricks and the fun of making something like that and forgot to focus on the most important thing, the story. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is, this stuff is so awesome.
3: Yeah. I, same with me. I mean, like I, it was a great analogy to say earlier about the magic because uh, that's what it really is. It's it's tricking people. I mean, film itself, uh, well, original, certainly original film and now even digital uh, <laughs> it, is, is magic. I mean, it's, you know, it's taking a bunch of still images and making it look like it's moving. And and, I uh, you know, I, I love looking back at old stuff like, you know, Wizard of Oz, King Kong, Citizen Kane, Gone with the Wind, you know, how they did that stuff back then. It's just amazing. And all the people that yeah. worked on those things that you never heard of, you never, you know, there's some guys or group of guys or m- mainly guys because there was very few women doing that kind of stuff uh, that that did all this work that you never heard of their names are lost forever which is which is a shame it wasn't really until star wars that people started getting the recognition for it yeah right
2: did you see alien when it came out
3: oh yeah oh yeah what was that like? That was uh, that was you know there, like I said we had the uh, luckily enough to be born at the right time to see you know Star Wars, uh, Superman was a, is a guilty pleasure and Alien and then Empire Strikes Back. It's like holy cow this you know the 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 uh, the level of filmmaking and that was what was struck me about Star Wars and it continued even with a film like Alien is because it was things that although they had all done that before they had never done it all together in one film. And, and for Star Wars, for me, and, and, and I was a big horror film too, uh, fan. So, uh, Alien worked that way for me too, is that, uh, they, they put them all all the things i liked into one movie you know uh and they did it really really well i i I remember sitting and watching star wars for the first time and you know just being blown away by that opening shot and everything but then there was some subtle stuff like he's in the desert they're in the desert the robots are in the desert walking away and you hear the little servo motors of c-3po as he's walking off in the distance i thought no one had ever done that before oh yeah you know And I just picked up on stuff like that. And I just like, this is fascinating. And it, and it tied into my, my love for mechanical stuff and ma- magic and all that. It's like, wow, this is, this is like the ultimate stage trick, you know? So, and an alien was just, uh, was, was, I had heard about it. You know, again, it, we had the, 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 ability of back then and not having the internet (laughs) and and not knowing what was coming. (laughs) You just, you just hear things about a movie. And so going to see alien, not knowing anything really about it. And it's like, Holy cow, this is, this is really a scary film. (laughs) And, 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 you know, watching it the second time or something, I say, okay, well now it's not as scary because it's slow because I know I'm waiting for all this stuff. uh,
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. It does seem like a very slow movie once you've seen it once because, Yeah, you're just awake waiting for those moments. But I think probably by the time I saw Alien, I had already known enough about it. I I knew what the Alien looked like. I... It would I kind of think about like what it would be like to walk into a theater not knowing anything about it and just hearing people say you have to go see this movie
3: yeah 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 it it was it was really cool and I I I didn't see nothing about it you know prior to it I again I heard it was really scary the reviews were coming out saying oh this is terrifying movie and that sort of thing and so I went to see it I was just you know uh, again blown away by it and 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 there, there's also something interesting about, uh, older films like that too. you talking about it being slow is that they're, they're see now, you know, with people's interest, you know, has to, you have to keep moving, cutting every few seconds and that sort of thing. You look at old film, older films like, uh, Godfather or, or Alien, even Alien for that matter, where there's these long shots, you know, and just like establishing shots and it's just like these long, and it's like, it's kind of refreshing to see compared to the boom 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 you know that that happens now with action films and and those kinds of films
1: right well being a huge fan of alien like i kind of feel that movie is like very tightly made it's a slower movie because it's like building suspense but you know like ridley scott tried to do the same thing with prometheus and he even like kind of follows some of the same techniques that he used in his first movie and and it's just like it's just not not as good, you know, because he's not communicating the same amount of information that he is in the first movie, you know, in the same
3: style. Right. There's also I th- I think the the, the it, Alien is a simple simple story, and I think you find that with most films that are good is that they're a simple story. I mean, they're they're stuck with an alien. They and they're getting like knocked out you know there was no there's no backstory to any of this stuff it's just like well they, well, they <laughs> don't waste time on that stupid stuff like yeah. they just
1: they just give you what you need to know it's like these are blue collar workers in space uh, you know trying to get home they get detoured they have to do this thing that they all don't want to do um, and then you know it basically all goes to hell you know and they um, yeah. find out the yeah, it's, a, it's a
3: haunted it's a haunted house in space is
1: actually, right you know and but, but, but like the way that the characters react to the situation feels authentic and real and right. I feel like you know in all the you know the more modern day alien movies like the Prometheus and Alien Covenant like it doesn't feel that way it feels like you know a movie or just not not realistic you know and, yeah. in the same way
2: basically. I agree yeah I agree yeah. when when did ILM like kind of get rid of its model department and what happened to all those guys I know like Kerner is where like that studio used to be, and now there's like there's people still there. Did all those guys kind of start their own company? Did they all like shatter off and start a bunch of different companies? And because I know you also had White Room Artifacts, like at what point did you start that?
3: Yeah, the so the um, the ILM technically never well they sold the model and stage departments to uh, Kerner Optical. Uh, Kerner Optical was created uh, solely to be. um that company. Um, They, they had behind them some funding that was going to focus on 3d uh, technology, camera technology and that sort of thing. And they did make their own 3d camera and that sort of thing. But, there's a whole other podcast probably about that story what happened there but uh it wasn't it wasn't thought through very well you know the whole 3d technology thing was in my opinion always was has been a fad you know they've kept trying it they tried in the 50s they tried in the 80s and they tried it just recently and it's like okay well did they make any more movies in 3d i don't know so anyway they tried to ride that wave and and with that they they took the most profitable profitable part of the business was the, the model and stage department and it continued working on some films that way but most of the you know the the older guys uh the guys that preceded me there uh charlie bailey lauren peterson steve golly they were all getting closer to retirement age anyway so i think a couple of them just took early retirement and continued working here and there where they could uh and uh and 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 that and they didn't so much start their own business i know charlie keeps is, is still very active but doing little side projects for people you know and and again it's more like museum type stuff special dis- specialty things this and that um it's, lauren is pretty much retired uh and 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 again steve does similar to what charlie does uh so um so unfortunately a lot of these people uh, steve is younger than the other guys and so i think they had to r- kind of reinvent themselves a little bit uh, when when this all all the model shop went away, um and uh, and then Kerner kind of just fizzled and and went into bankruptcy and all sorts of stuff there. But the it pr- just prior to that, I wasn't getting any more work. I continued working at Kerner. It it, it wasn't working out for me there. It, times changed and and again the work was was, was did the work just for that kind of stuff just start drying up? It because really did. Started
2: going towards CG.
3: Yeah, it wasn't so much. Yeah, it wasn't. So, they was always going towards CG, but by having the the connection to ILM, I think ILM was like we got to use these guys more somehow. So they kept on finding ways to to incorporate that. Well, once that those apron strings were broken, they're like, well, we'll just do everything digitally. You know, they did continue using Kerner here and there, but it got less and less and less. And other companies tried to you know did use Kerner here and there, but uh there is man like i said there is management issues and everything like that too they could have probably continued on maybe you know with the right set of managing management and 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 funding and stuff like that but I, I think it just generally that you could you couldn't maintain that huge of a company for too long. So, um,
1: so right, with, it just, with the uh, amount of work they were getting, basically,
3: yeah, with the little amount of work that was happening, yeah, yeah. they would really had to invent themselves and move into other aspects. Which they did try. I mean, they did uh, the uh, a beautiful model of the um, Disneyland that's at the Walt Disney Family Museum. Um, in the Presidio. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So how do you, you, everyone has these great skills at making
2: things like I, I'm, I'm, this is kind of a leading question. Cause I know a little bit about what you guys ended up doing, but like, how do you take those skills and, and figure out like a new way to make money with them?
3: Yeah. Well, for, again, for us, the white, we created white room artifacts um, as a spinoff in the sense that um, I was, had worked on this project with these guys in Europe uh, on a museum, Star Wars museum project that I was helping out with, and he came, The producer came up with the idea. He and I came up with the idea of uh, doing an a, a exhibition on NASA, and uh, so we were able to fund the start of White Room artifacts with uh, with that project. And, uh, and it was great because for 10 months we worked, uh, on it, making a bunch of models that were to be exhibited in the museum. We designed the, the, uh, exhibition and everything. And I had, The cream of the crop of model makers working with me Lauren Peterson, Steve Colley, Charlie Bailey Nelson Hall, Danny Wagner You know, a whole bunch of uh, A whole bunch of really, really talented artists And it was really cool to see Particularly Lauren, Steve, and Charlie working Because when I worked with them They were always supervisors So, and unfortunately when you're in supervisor You get very little hands-on experience You're always like dealing with budgets and producers and, And, you know, pointing And telling people how to do stuff And that sort of thing I never got to see them work and damn, they're good. <laughs> you know, they were, they, <laughs> that's how they got to that position. right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was so cool to say, Hey, uh, you know, Charlie, can you make a space shuttle? <laughs> and, you know, it's like, sure. And then, you know, several weeks later, there's a space shuttle. It looks like a real space shuttle. Uh, so, um, so it, it was amazing to watch those guys work. And I, even at that point, I was learning from them techniques and, and stuff like that. So it was it was really cool. Unfortunately, the, for, I, I was trying to get more into the exhibition stuff. And, and that again, that work was really hard to break into that level of, of uh, detail and, and budget and everything was not available for most museum uh, projects and so we were trying to do you know commercial projects that's when i was breaking out and and looking at for other commercial venues and um uh commercial uh, commercials to to do because that's what was happening in the bay area we tried to get into you know places down in la uh, and just let everybody even ilm we had meetings with ilm but they just nobody was really doing it and um so it just became difficult to maintain and simultaneously, through Kerner Optical, they split off a company called Kerner Works, which started doing trauma training mannequins for the military. And uh, so these are highly realistic uh, animatronic uh, humans, uh, all male uh, humans, that uh, – that are made with silicone skin and everything like that are, and are very realistic and they've got amputations and, you know, they bleed and they breathe and they, the eyes dilate and it just uh, – so they were, they started developing this line of, uh, of work and they got bought out by a much bigger company. And so now that same team – and again, there's about – the 50 people working there, about half of them are all people I've, I've worked with over the last 30 years – um, that's where I'm at right now, uh, working with them. So it's g- kind of gone back to the creature, uh, building. <laughs> yeah. And we're making creatures again. They're humans and they're doing, the, using that mm. technology. But it's not
2: uh, for film now. It's, it's for not for real film. life training. Yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. saving
3: lives, which is kind of cool. At least that we're not cool. making, making bombs. It's so. like,
2: I, I love this story because. And rec- <laughs> I, I. the last time i saw don i walked through this place and it's just it's bizarre just to see like all these human body parts everywhere oh, and wow. people yeah, working on them and um yeah it just it's so bizarre but it did make so much sense to me when i saw it i was like yeah this is like a natural extension of what you guys are already doing and like a completely new area of business um it's kind of amazing that you guys even found this
3: Yeah, it was. It kind of fell on everyone's lap. I joined the team late in the game. I've only been there like about four years now, and I tried maintaining white room on the side while I was still doing this, and then it just yeah. I I, you know again, it just financially wasn't wasn't right. But but yeah, I mean, and then you know talk about PR, they're they're actually they. Totally whenever they, they bring a, a client through to try to sell them more of these things. They they totally do the whole like, Hey, these guys worked on Star Wars, you know? so <laughs> yeah. They they really try to push the, the they push the film thing, you know. So Do you feel so it sounds like the
2: business of doing special effects? got really hard for everyone and there just wasn't enough to sustain anyone. But now that there's like this renewed interest in it, is there a new generation that's taking the torch and learning the skills and like carrying it on, carrying on the legacy or is it just kind of like dying out? What's going to happen in like 20 years when people want to do practical effects again? And like, where are they going to go? Like, who are they going to talk to? Cause it, even the people I know that used to be Stan Winston, that's a legacy. It just seems like a lot of those guys are older too.
3: Yeah, and eventually that that will happen, I would think. I mean, because uh, it's not their kind of like the training, um, yeah, handing off like like we had in at ILM, where you know there you'd have this group of older guys, and by older I meant forty or something like that, with a group <laughs> of twenty guys, twenty yeah, year olds right. coming in, uh, and um, so you don't have that. Uh, that capability because the the company's not there and the thing is too everything is it seems to be a digital solution first now i mean i worked on a commercial a few years ago we we made a bunch of talking cars and because the first people they they brought on were the digital team uh, they all had solutions to fix these shots digitally it's like well if you would just told us we could have done this all right here and now and you wouldn't have had to do any post-production on it you know there was even there we were discussing one shot line up it's like we could do this completely in camera right now and they didn't want to do it that way because they had to justify them being there for some reason you know for 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 being there first so um, so unfortunately you know that that phrase that the if the only tool in your toolbox is a is a hammer every solution looks like is a nail um Uh, is that the right phrase? But anyway, you know, (laughs) it sounds good to me. Yeah. It's like, so everyone uses digital uh, to the end of the solution and and there's not enough people I think that know how to look at it the old way. I just, I would hope that there would be, there would be a younger generation that would look at it and, and, and approach things, you know, with that kind of, uh, have you
2: met anybody that's kind of trying to start their own thing in the Bay area or in LA?
3: No, well, 3210, I mean, is trying to maintain, you know, keeping it up, keeping that going. But unfortunately, again, I don't think the work is there. Um, Yeah and they're using the same you know some of the same people that that we all used to work with when they have those kinds of projects but they they really haven't done a whole lot of like model work and stuff like that it, again it tends to be like oh let's do let's blow things up not just them but just in the in the film business general it's like let's let's use the practical effects guys just to blow things up and, <laughs> right. and, and that's and,
2: that's the one thing that's hard to do digitally
3: yeah, it, it, lo- it looks great, and it's much easier to blow something up <laughs> than than yeah. than do it digitally. So.
2: All right, who did you use on your films for practical stuff?
1: So, uh, Pandora Effects um, is a local company in Oakland. Um, and, uh, you know, Margaret is the, the, the head of that company and she's been gathering a group of, um, you know, special effects artists, like younger people who are interested in it and trying to like grow her roster of artists basically. Um, and they do practical effects and then special effects makeup. Um, I think probably mainly special effects makeup, but, uh, they do all kinds of stuff. And there's a guy, George Schminky who, um, I think still works with them, but, um, at the time, he was one of th- their artists and he worked um, as a fabricator in the daytime, like making props, um, 3D printed props, basically. Mm. Um, but I think he moved to Los Angeles and is like working for some other companies. But uh, that's who I worked with on my first movie. And then on my second movie, I worked with this really young guy, Julian Bonfiglio. And um, he was like a runner up on that sci-fi um you know special effects like reality show that they oh, have face off face off yeah, yeah exactly um so yeah he did um the practical effects for my second short film uh, brother uh but it feels like there's people out there doing that stuff um and you know i'm not going to say that those people are like extremely busy but they seem to always be working on something you know um whether it's like a short film or a feature or whatever you know
3: yeah it seems like makeup uh people uh, tend to stay busy i mean you always need makeup on actors one way or the other typically yeah uh and 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 there seems to be a a very steady uh flow of work for makeup effects type people you know yeah
1: and they do some creature work like they've made some heads and some masks um and then some i think some actual like you know, I don't know if they're animatronic, but like some puppets type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know Margaret has a huge passion for that. She's like a big Stan Winston geek and just loves all that stuff. And she has a shop that she makes everything out of. Um, but she did all the ooze for my first short um, Strange Thing. And then George did the puppet and then like basically applied the ooze to the puppet and then made it, you know, explode. Um, or yeah, well, she had the device, but then that 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 shot the ooze and then um you know george uh, was the one who used it you know Mm. um yeah on set but yeah it was really fun um but i mean that that was my question was like you know if there's like a young filmmaker in the bay area who is like doing a film they want to do as many like practical special effects as possible i mean are you a person to reach out to to be like hey like help me figure this out and like are you doing that kind of work are you kind of like focusing on other things
3: uh i always always be able to advise people on stuff that um yeah i mean the the full-time job i've got a full-time job working with trauma effects now so i don't seek out um the side projects as much um uh, if some stuff comes to me here and there and you know we talk about it and then. (laughs) <laughs> as is usual, it typically goes away. That even happened when I had White Room. I mean, of the twenty projects that would be approached, we'd maybe get one or two, because either they decided they they couldn't do the project, or you know it it dried up, or whatever you know for whatever reason, or they went someplace else. Um, so uh, so yeah, I occasionally get um, uh, a call here and there, but I don't do it as much. I really. We we started do we, we did this short film of ours that uh, is kind of like um, uh, an approach to uh, like hey we, we can do this you know we we have all these years of experience between all of us and we can do this and let us let's, let's just do it let's just see what we can do with it and was this all
2: uh, partly born just of like you guys are just sitting around working on these trauma mannequins and you're like we want to get into film like let's make something why Uh, why are we just well
3: well, sort of i mean the 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 genesis of the project came out with um dave and lou um who incredibly talented makeup artists um and uh and anna and i my wife and i we were down in la last year they live down in la and we were just having dinner with them and they had just come off beauty and the beast uh well not just come off but they had previously had just done Beauty and the Beast and Dave designed the Beast for the live action Beast and he was telling us the horror story of how they had again they had started out with like five visual effects companies and 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 then the director really wanted the Beast practical Um, and uh, and they designed this beautiful Beast costume for uh, the actor to wear and uh, at, at every step of the way the producers uh, were blocking them from being successful essentially and every time they would you know have some sort of challenge to them Dave and Lou and the team rose to it and overcame it and they finally said okay well shoot a, shoot a test with this thing so they shot the dance the, between Belle and uh, the Beast and it wasn't Emma Watson it was her, her dance double And, uh, and it wasn't Dan Stevens, it was his dance double. And they put him in the costume and they did the whole sequence on the set and everything. I saw it. And, and it was gorgeous. And it was, it was beautiful. And that afternoon, uh, they fired them. (laughs) <laughs> and oh they gosh. said we're going to do it digitally
1: so uh, that's, ter- that's terrible and so do you think it's just because they didn't think it looked that good
3: or no it looked great it, it, it looked better than personally and it's not because yeah. they're friends of mine it looked better than than the digital uh, version I was not that impressed with the Beauty and the Beast
1: um, effects because I saw it in the theater and yeah. I was just like how much of this is practical, practical? No. none of this is practical why does it look so crummy like what's going on here yeah. I mean why couldn't they just get Dan Stevens in the suit that was just what I kept on thinking the whole time and hey, then like his little little baby legs and like for his feet you know it's like didn't seem it was like what the hell's going on here
3: yeah they <laughs> made know. they made leg extensions and everything I mean they had the, the whole thing it's such a bummer. Even apparently Emma Watson saw the costume and she says, "Why are we using this?"
1: Oh yeah, gosh, and yeah. What? Are, come on, producers. I want if they're listening to this show, which they're not. I want them to answer to that. Why answer us? <laughs> well, are they that?
3: <laughs> well the, I think ultimately it was like again they had they had hired five visual effects studios or three or whatever. it was a it was more than one. And they were going to be sitting around for a year and a half with nothing to do if they did it practically, you know. So,
1: uh, so they're like, "We're going to save our money on the practical and then just use the visual effects that we've already." Well, they were already, already contracted; to.
3: those companies were already contracted. So. Yeah,
1: that's so stupid. though. So
3: I mean, it, it, you know, it's not. It's it's the worst form of filmmaking. It's the it's the it's the uh, you know filmmaking by committee and and. I always would like to think that filmmaking is a personal thing even even on a big but even like a Star Wars movie you know the original Star Wars it was more of a personal project for George he had to rely on a bunch of people to do it but uh you know it was ultimately a personal film and um and you know you would want to hope that that every film you get to work on but unfortunately politics and and money get in the way so uh, yeah. but it, anyway we were sitting around lamenting all these stories of of you know different things and we're like wait we could we could do this (laughs) so dave said i got a script i said i'll get a crew together and then and two months later we were shooting our movie and amazing uh, and Dave and Lou are really good friends with, obviously, Rick Baker, but, uh, Markie Post from Night Court, the Night Court TV series. Oh, that's cool. And, uh, and she was, uh, you know, she, uh, she's done a lot of things to, since, since Night Court, but this was something different and unique for her. You know, she wasn't, it's not the typically kind of thing she gets cast in. So she was all up for the challenge. And fortunately, we got her daughter, who's an amazing, amazing actress, uh, lives out in New York plays opposite her she doesn't play her daughter in the film uh and uh and then rick uh, agreed to be the ghost uh in in our movie and yeah, that's uh, really cool and dave designed the makeup and we had these amazing makeup artists apply it um rick didn't apply the makeup he, he you know he was just uh he just was the subject yeah he was just in the movie yeah yeah and uh and we did it and we tried to approach it we shot it in two days up here in petaluma um we tried to approach it l- we didn't have any idea that we we're going to do any kind of digital effects in it. We weren't planning on doing any kind of digital. We we're going to do it all in camera, <laughs> yeah. and we did. <laughs> uh, oh, nice. We essentially did. We we shot the whole film like you would do an, a film back in the seventies. Matter of fact, the whole film has a seventies like Hammer uh, film. Uh, feel to it, uh, and we shot everything right then and there. If you know uh, we knew that there was going to be at least there was one shot we figured well we 're going to have to do this somehow digitally, but it was an easy motion control shot. And, uh, so then we did the whole thing and we started cutting it together and we had a, we had a delay in our post production because uh, a person that was, had started working on it that was going to help us do a bunch of stuff, uh, became unavailable. So we had to find other people to, to do it. But this was, it was great because of the connections that we had. We reached out to friends in the community, the film community and, uh, Dave contacted Phil Tip and he says, yeah, I could put a couple of my guys on it for, you buy him some uh, beer. Buy him some beer. Well, that's cool. So, um, so we need. We realized at that point we needed. Um, uh, uh, there was a, again a few digital enhancements. I I would like to say not not effects um, that were uh, that we added, and uh, and that's what the Tippets team. Mainly did. Uh, we had another guy, uh, that we heard about. I have yet to m- meet him. He did a bunch of cleanup shots for us because we were shooting and even though it's a, a, an old house, it still had some modern fixtures and it. it was key that there wasn't like a light fixture in it because the house was supposed to be lit by gaslight. And so he digitally removed some gaslight, uh, some modern fixtures for us. Uh, oh, that's and then we cool. had one shot where, where Kate, our actress, when she, she faints, her eye crossed, uh, she crosses her eyes. And it it just was uh, wasn't appropriate for the shot, so we had her. Uh, we had him uncross her eyes. But, uh, <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> That's funny. But those were the the, the approaches, and it was. I don't think it was like you know. Well, we're going to screw those digital effects guys. We really we really embraced it. And we really un, un, understood that you know, it, it it they are important. I mean, you could use them importantly in, yeah. in the film, and but, they're
2: the great artists too. I mean, the, I, I like to say that they do what everyone used to do with their hands just in a computer
3: absolutely I, I think like i said there's all this mentality now of like oh you just press a button and you fix it and it's not like that at all no. and again <laughs> un- uncrossing an eye yeah. it took it took the guy a couple tries to make it look right because right. you know you don't mess with someone's face i mean because it, it doesn't look right when you start messing with it and um, uh, so, yeah, it, 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 we just really embraced the idea of just shooting it as uh, as practically as possible, and uh, and, and it was a great it was a great learning experience for all of us. I mean, I I've been around film uh, making for thirty odd years now, but um, but to be able to have to be involved in touching every aspect of it was 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 really really cool. And
2: yeah, your role was producer and editor.
3: Yeah, you know that's and, and, and as you know, Timothy, you, you, you do everything.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, when you're putting together an indie film, you're you're wearing every hat.
3: Yeah, those are the two I took credit for. I mean, I was the, <laughs> I was the assistant director. I made yeah. props. I made you know we all wow. did that. We all like nice. were, we all like uh, with with Peter Peter Overstreet helped out helped us out as production. Oh, awesome. uh, but with him, we, you know, we all went into the house the week before and we dressed it up. And, and and you know made it look right i i made a, a bed out of uh, plumbing pipe and 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 pallets <laughs> oh, and, a, and an inflatable cool. <laughs> mattress and uh you know so we 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 did everything and 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 then like i said the post production side of it we weren't meant to edit it but we ended up editing it ourselves and, uh, we were really happy with the way that came out too. And then like, you know, just shepherding the, the, the thing all the way through with the visual effects side of it, which was minimal. I mean, it is, I think something like 25 shots or something. Yeah. But, uh, but, um, the uh, and then the music uh, we we were lucky to get so uh, there's a there's a guy that named Kevin Rubio I don't know if you know Kevin Rubio an independent filmmaker from way back he did Troops he did the original um, that uh, oh film cool troops. nice yeah and Kevin. Is friends with a guy named Joe Kramer and, and he posted something on Facebook and I'm friends with Kevin on Facebook. And I says, Hey, we've got this film. I says, You think Joe Kramer would be interested in doing <laughs> music for us? And Joe Kramer did, uh, uh, Mission Impossible, uh, the last one, Rogue Nation. Oh, wow. Holy and, uh, and he did, uh, he did, one I think Jack Reacher or something like that. Oh, um, cool. And, and Kevin says, I don't know, I'll ask him. So he asked him and Joe's like, Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh that's awesome so joe as uh, joe did this amazing score for us uh again Gosh. not very long the movie's only 18 minutes long so you know there's only about 10 minutes of music in the whole thing what an amazing but, uh, lineup you got in your film i know and it kept getting better and better when when we did the <laughs> when we uh, i have a friend a cinematographer friend that i asked about we were uh we were, we were together doing a location scout for a little commercial that we did and um I says, hey, I got this other project. I if oh, you're interested. I said, Rick Baker's going to play the ghost. He says, Rick Baker. He says, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> so, and uh, so <laughs> then, so then uh, we were talking about what kind of camera we can shoot it on. And you know, he had access to like a, C, uh, uh, a Canon C100 or C300 or something like that. And you know, we didn't want to shoot it in like on a DSLR and all that sort of stuff. And 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 then he says, you know what? I know somebody with an Aeroflex. Um, and um, and and so he contacted him, uh, and the guy says, "Oh yeah, sure, you can have the camera and the prime lenses." <laughs> so, so we shot yes. it on Airflex, uh, an Airy M. You know, the it's an older camera, but it, it amazing, amazing quality. And uh, and and then Bill, uh, Bill actually does a lot of our cinematographer does a lot of work with Airflex. It does he teaches cinematography for them. And so he had access to a lot of their uh, equipment, you know, the led lights and stuff like that, which were, which were amazing. And um, yeah, it was, it, it, you know, it just, it, at every step of the level, the, the, the bar got raised a little higher and a little higher. That's little how it higher. happens. Yeah. It starts small and then you
2: just build momentum. And especially with somebody that like you, that knows so many people. Um, yeah. It just, that's, that's an amazing Story, like to hear all the people that just jumped on board. So the film is called "Keep the Gaslight Burning."
3: Yeah, it's based on a short story uh, from uh, a, an author from an English author that uh, he did a bunch of little like vampire and ghost stories, you know, throughout the '60s and '70s. Okay, He's, cool. Uh, uh, so it was an ad- adaptation of, of that. You said
2: it's ten minutes long. Eighteen. Eighteen. Oh, okay, 18. cool. So yeah, I, I'm yeah, like looking forward. I'm going to see it tomorrow. Is anyone listening to this podcast going to be able to see it anytime soon?
3: Well, we we just uh, we just entered the yet another world of uh, film festivals, which I'm sure you know all about, both of you. Um, <laughs> yep. And uh, so we're we're learning all about that. Um, and and we've submitted to 21, I think, film festivals so far. Uh, we won't hear for a while. Actually, the first one I think we hear we'll have notification next week so at the moment at the moment but then most of them are later in the year so um i feel like giving
2: your lineup any any horror film festival that you send this to and you say like rick baker's the ghost they're gonna be like it's in yeah, well that's yeah. what we're hoping <laughs> it's in yep everyone's yeah. gonna want to see that did yeah. you
1: send it to Shriek Fest on Scream Fest
3: in yes. the fall okay those yeah. are the
1: two best ones
3: yeah um, and, so. and Sitges, uh, is it's not up for oh Stige's, sorry yeah uh, in, in Italy right uh, Spain I thought. Spain Spain yeah you're right Spain. yeah Stige's, right. yeah uh yeah it, we even submitted mill valley film festival uh just for the heck of it you know and
1: what about fantastic fest yes fantasia yes okay awesome you, yeah. you got the big ones yeah, oh. we, yeah
3: we went on like i said it's a whole new world to get into it's yeah. like you know you go in without a box and film freeway and it's like yeah. you just start searching it's like oh that one looks good all oh, that one and then we started doing research <laughs> on each one of the individual ones uh you know and and like uh uh you know which ones would would be appropriate for us and we even did like I said like Mill Valley which is probably nice. not not exactly right. you know the, but the audience knows? but who knows yeah, uh, yeah. yeah what about
1: uh the New York uh, horror film festival did you guys do that one I think think so i've heard that's a really good one um i almost got into it with one of my movies and i was like so bummed that it didn't happen but then i just always just in new york with some new york filmmakers and they were talking about all the horror film festivals in the east coast and so i guess like brooklyn has a a horror film festival that's really good and there's a few others um out there that are really cool so i would look into
3: those Uh, yeah i'm looking up at the ones there's some that that aren't already uh uh, right you know right. that you can't submit to yet uh, right right. there's a uh, Paris short film festival berlin short film festival fantasia flickers fright fest la shorts holly shorts dragon con burbank film festival toronto oh yeah Inter- dragon con that's another good one toronto international film festival rain dance fantastic fence fest uh women in horror because our one of our directors is a woman and anna's producers are women and plus nice. the, women, the actresses mainly are women Uh, Mill Valley, Scream Fest, Telluride Horror Show, British Horror Film Fest, Austin Film Festival, AFI Fest, Brooklyn Horror Film Festival, Cinepocalypse. Nice. uh, Which is uh, the one that Bruce Campbell started, apparently, Cinepocalypse. lady film filmmakers festival so that's our twenty twenty two. actually 22 you
1: should also do toronto after dark when they open for submissions i don't think they open till like late in the summer i think that's on our list yeah yeah but i played there that was like one of the biggest ones i got onto and it was a really really fun experience so cool yeah
2: um what's the hope with this don do you do you hope that people are somebody's gonna find it and be like guys where have you been let's go make a huge movie together
3: that that would be one thing one one possible outcome we uh yeah. the uh, <laughs> we do have uh we do have an idea after we started this we had an idea for an anthology series that that could tie in with this whole thing um and um, yeah uh Who so would be into you know, that jj J. abrams <laughs> well we're thinking more like Guillermo
2: del Toro you know yeah that <laughs> so, there you go that's probably a better fit or even there, but, um Oh, who directs Iron Man? John Favreau is like super into like practical stuff.
3: Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. He the, might, well, the, might we be had the, it's fu- it's funny uh Guillermo uh Dave and Lou had worked with him on uh I can't remember which movie they worked with him on. So they they we were they're going to try to get him a copy to to look at. Um but he uh um, it was all – when we were talking about it, it was right around the Oscars, so he's probably still in, his, in the midst of his Oscar <laughs> glow, so we figured yeah. we'll let that die down a bit. Uh, John Landis saw it. He loved it. Oh, nice. Uh, and it was funny. A week after we shot it, we had you know frame grabs and stuff, and Rick Baker and his wife uh, asked for them. Uh, to because they were entertaining Peter Jackson and his wife for dinner, and they they so they saw the they saw the stills and they loved they loved what they saw. They says, "Wow, this is amazing!" That's cool. Uh, you know the these is because it, even it's funny because Rick Rick even said when he showed up we flew him up uh, from LA when he showed up to do it, he says he expected it would be a couple guys and, you know, with a, with a handy cam or something shooting and didn't realize <laughs> yeah, it was a full a on, funny. full on film production. Yeah. One, oh, sure. That's fun. Yeah. It helps to have friends in high places, right? You know, well, and it, what was really cool about it. And like, like, even to the extent of like, you know, Phil Tippett offering to help, uh, is that, um, that, that the community is there, there, you know, people are passionate about this and they want to help out other people. And, um, so, so it, like I said, it, it, what I was really amazed with uh that, that people, you know, were that willing to help and they saw a cool project and they, or they thought, that <laughs> thought it was a cool project and, uh, you know, they, they wanted to be involved. They wanted to help out. So, yeah. So the hope, the hope is that, yeah, I mean, to show that we can do things other than, you know make things blow up. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I uh one little nerd tidbit. I
1: just looked up Dave and Lou on IMDb and I saw that they did beast from X-Men first class. Yeah, And, uh, yeah, that's a, that was pretty incredible. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of that movie and that effect particularly and how they did it practically. So yeah, tip of my hat to them on that yeah, one.
3: They're, they're amazing. And they did a, there's a thing on Netflix right now called, I think it's called the push. Um, it's, uh, Aaron, who's, there? Darren Brown. He's the, like, magician psychic in the UK. Ah, He's yeah. He's got a cameo in one of the, the Sherlock episodes. Uh, but, uh, he did this social experiment whether or not somebody would actually kill somebody. And, and it's on Netflix right now. I recommend to watch it. It's, it's disturbing, <laughs> uh, to see the psyche of human, <laughs> the humans. But anyway, uh, the, um, They did this, they had to recreate a human body. that's realistic to um, that, that would, you know, that would fool somebody up close, you know, by picking it up and moving around thinking it's a real dead body. And they, they did this and, and it, that was absolutely amazing. They were telling me all about it. They, I I knew about it a while ago. It's the show actually aired a number of years ago, I think in the UK, but it's just now on Netflix. So. Oh, that's cool.
2: So Ulrich, do you need to head out for work? No, I, I can stay. Okay, we just have a few few last things. Um, we do like five questions, Don, that I want to get into. and But before we get there, I just want to see, Alric, do you have any last-minute last questions about keep the gaslight burning? Oh, man, I could else. probably
1: nerd out for a long time, but I think I sh- we should just, you know, wrap this up. We're already almost an hour and 40 minutes, so,
2: you know. <laughs> we should have known this was going to happen. I, well, I knew
1: it was just going to happen. I knew
2: that this was yeah. going
1: to happen. Because we're both, like, big, you know, pre- effects geeks, and we
2: love this stuff, so. Like, yeah, yeah. All, all these movies are the movies I grew up on, and, like, it's the first time I remember falling in love with movies besides seeing E.T. and just loving that film but being in the library and moving from the magic book section to the special effects section like that was like the, the transition so I like really always equated magic and visual effects and the the book I remember going through all the time was the one from ILM just showing how they did all the effects for like Star Wars and Indiana Jones and E.T. And it's just like always just looking through that and seeing matte paintings and green screens and puppets. And like, so all this stuff is like really dear to my heart. It's like oh, always yeah. been the dream of mine to work on movies that incorporated all this technology. So like when I got the when I came up with the idea for the spirit machine, that's kind of like what drove me into that project it was like, this is the kind of movie I've always wanted to make.
3: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I w- always fascinated with those things, too. I, I, if I'll always stop and look at watch a, something on behind the scenes or anything. I've always I've always disappointed that uh, like so many of the behind the scenes things are, again, a PR um uh, tool, <laughs> yeah, right? And they always talk with the actors and the director. Uh, director, I right. don't mind, but it's like the actors. It's like you know, the actors are such a small part of it in that time, right? You know, you have all this this amazing team of people behind the actors that that make them all look good, and 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 particularly the uh, any movie that has effects and stuff in it. Um Yeah, I mean, I, I don't yeah. know if you remember a, a magazine called Cinefantastique, mm-hmm. yeah, but they they came out with the Star Wars, um, uh, uh, uh edition back in 1977 and then from that there in that in one of their sub- subsequent uh, uh issues they had an ad for cinefex when if cinefex was first starting so i actually got the cinefex the very first cinefex magazine i've been a subscriber for cinefex since day one i still have oh, i have cool. every issue so. Wow, that's
1: awesome! And I yeah. love looking
3: at those old ones and seeing the behind-the-scenes stuff.
1: Yeah. Speaking of good behind-the-scenes, the Fast and the Furious DVDs have amazing uh, behind-the-scenes features about the stunts, and it's like all the stunt guys talking about how they pulled off the stunt, what stunt they did, how they did it, and and like detailed like breakdowns of the stunts. So those, those are, are another ones.
3: group of guys that are, are really sadly underrepresented, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. in in the industry. I mean, it that there's some you know. Again, well done. Well, that stuff looks amazing, and uh, and they, they don't get quite the recognition. Mm, they should. Yeah,
1: yeah. All right, let's get to these questions. Yeah. Huh?
3: So last five questions. We just need.
2: We're looking for like one, two sentences, maybe a paragraph at most answers to these things. Okay. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. The first one is David Fincher says you're doing pretty good if you can get seventy percent of what you wanted on your film. Do you agree with this? And if so, what percentage did you get from "Keep the Gaslight Burning"?
3: Oh that is a good question. <laughs> um I I would say yeah we I agree with it and yes I think we got we got at least 70%. There were there was some things we would would have liked to done if we had a little bit more time but but we understood and we we were good with it. What's the thing you struggle with the most as a filmmaker? <sighs> <laughs> um time (laughs) Uh, You never seem to have enough time to do everything the way you want to do it. But then again, that could be that could work to your advantage because then you come up with clever solutions.
2: If you could travel back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be?
3: <laughs> Stay away from the film business. Um, oh, no, no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I hate it because I've I've actually asked people like about questions of trying to get into the film business when I was first starting. Like, and some it. people were like, "Yeah, find another industry." And I was like, "No,
2: not, it does not, kind of break your heart, happening. though, right? Like it's it's like yeah. a, it's a, a little bit like an abusive relationship. You love it, and sometimes it doesn't love you back."
3: Well, right. exactly. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, there, there's so many twists and turns for me in particular. You know, I w- going down. Oh, I thought it was going to be makeup and then and makeup went away. And then, oh, it's going to be creature. Oh, that went away. Oh, it's a miniature. Oh, that went away. <laughs> I kept on a, a, I think the, the one question would be to, I, I, I actually enrolled into Columbia College film school in Chicago. I would have been a, I would have been a classmate of, uh, y- Janusz Kaminski, um, uh, had I, had I, been there at the wow. time uh, and so th- that would have been probably my one advice is to uh, i I didn't end up going um and uh, i my advice would have been to go there because i I would have rather instead of taking a detour of going through the visual effects world uh, I would have rather stayed into real you know filmmaking uh, uh, directing and, and writing and that sort of thing, editing
1: do you have
3: a goal as a filmmaker? To make enough to to make it as a living, <laughs> to do it as a, yeah, do, to do it uh yeah to no, Don, do you
2: can't say that because you've already done it, right? You you were well, making a no, living I mean, on it.
3: Well, I made a living at doing visual effects, but that's not really filmmaking, is it? Uh, the um yeah the you know do, doing what we did like and keep the gaslight burning and and doing um more doing more of that, you know, where we we have the the project and are in control of it.
2: Yeah. It's funny, like that's the same answer from a lot of people. Like, we're all kind of struggling with that.
3: So, yeah, yeah you're yeah. not
2: alone. Uh, exactly.
3: Last one is making movies hard? It's incredibly difficult. But you know what I did find is that um, with the right team of people, it can be incredibly fun. <laughs> so, I think
2: that's the key the nice. right team of people, right?
3: Yeah. Yeah. The right collaborators. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, the website is keepthegaslightburning.com. You can right. see all the information about this movie And I guess everyone's going to have to wait a little bit to, um, to see it But they can follow the film on Facebook Or Twitter or Instagram or something
3: Yeah, all the links are on the website as well Okay, cool those And uh, we're, we're keeping updating it with As we know about film festivals We'll be updating it And there's a trailer We're going to do a trailer as well so. That's exciting
2: I'm looking forward to nice. seeing what happens with it Cool Yeah, me too I'm looking forward to seeing it I
1: wish I could go tomorrow night But I, uh, I'm going to be out of town but uh, you know, we'll, we'll have Send to arrange. Link. We'll
3: Send have to arrange link. something. Yes. Oh yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, anything else you want to plug? Do you have a personal website you want people to go to? Or no, anything? I lost my
3: domain name. I had DonBees.com. and it was. Uh, oh really? I, I, oh. I didn't pay. I did. I missed the renewal, and it went away. So oh, anyway. that's funny. But no, I, yeah, I, everything would be on that. Uh, White Room Entertainment is the company my wife and I have. We we're gonna make that live shortly. Uh, uh, she's got a, a really fun. Documentary, uh, uh, interesting documentary that she she's been working on is a passion project for her, called uh, about uh, a film uh, fashion person uh, uh, Isabella Blow, and oh, uh, who cool. gave the, who gave the start to a lot of uh, famous um, designers over the years, and uh, so she's been doing a working on that for a while now, and um, yeah, so and then we'll be plugging keep the gaslight burning and other projects as they come up. Nice. Awesome.
1: All right. Any final words before we wrap this
2: up? No. Take us out.
1: All right. Well, thanks uh, again to Don for being on the show and talking to us for so long. Yeah, I know that there's a lot of people out there who are going to geek out on this episode the way that Timothy and I did um, recording it. So, yeah, I'm really excited to share it with people. Um, And thanks, everyone, for listening. You can visit our website at makingmoviesishard.com where you can find the links to the things that we talked about in this episode, including links to Don's work. And, you know, we'll kind of try to scrounge up whatever we can. I mean, if you have any behind-the-scenes video clips of you working, I don't know if you have that, but, oh, my gosh, I know people would love to see that stuff. Yeah, yeah, Um, amazingly, no. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, and then if you like our podcast, we'd love for you to tell our, your friends about us. Leave us a rating on in Apple Podcasts. If you'd prefer to get in contact contact with us directly, you can send an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard com, or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook with the handle at, at mmih podcast. And be sure to check out our Indie Filmmakers group on Facebook, which I know Don's a part of, which is really awesome. Um, and yeah, just connect with people that you can ask questions. If you got a practical effects questions, maybe Don will respond, maybe, potentially. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think this is a really great place to, to have conversations. And gosh, I mean, somebody just mentioned that we're like, you know, over 500 members now, I think, and it's only been around for like a couple months. Oh, so. yeah.
2: I think there's yeah. probably at least like five people that are asking to be a part of the group every day. At Yeah, only that I'm seeing, and we have like six admins, so who knows how many other Yeah,
1: they're doing a good job of of filtering everything and making sure we're not inviting only bots. So (laughs) trust that those people who are in the group are real people, which uh, makes me really happy. Yeah, Um, it's a it's a it's
3: a great it's a great resource there. I think.
1: Yeah, I think it's also fun just to have geek out conversations
2: about movies and things too, and just like talk about stuff. We had a nice interchange about uh, Star Wars.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which was was epic. Oh my gosh, it got really, really heated on there. Um, which I think <laughs> it's is fun. A, yeah. it's a passionate subject for some. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, it really, yeah. And I think more so than anyone expected it to be. Which I think is you know what makes filmmaking so great is that people can have such opposite reactions to something. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, thanks again, and yeah, awesome. yeah that was
2: fun. Yeah. Cool. All right, is that enough for for an ending? Are no, you, okay, I think we should we it. just should do something a little bit um, <laughs> more final. <laughs> sure. uh, all right, everyone. Well, well, I guess we'll talk to you next week. Thanks again, Don. Thanks, Thank all. Thank you. Rick. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, Auric, if Don was on the show today, what would be the one question you'd ask him?
1: I'd probably ask him if he's been doing any uh, visual fe- or special effects work recently, and then I'd probably ask him if there was any stories he didn't tell us the first time, because I, he told us the Indiana, J- Indiana Jones and Last Crusade story in detail. I think he talked Starship Troopers. I'm pretty sure he's talked Ghostbusters too, but I think there was a couple others that he didn't talk about that I would love to just have heard about the making of, because... I mean the Indiana Jones and Last Crusades thing, it was like months, months working on that. And it's like, you know, all of thirty seconds or less in the movie. It's like probably like Was it the
0: face melting? Did it do the face melt?
1: It did the face melt.
0: Cool. Yeah.
1: It was really cool. Yeah, and they did it over here in the in the Northern California, you know, up in the old you know ILM stage or whatever. That's now Ten Thirty One Studios or whatever. So yeah, it's really cool to hear to hear all those stories. But yeah, I don't know. I'd probably ask him about that, and I'd probably just hear what he's up to if he's worked on any movies lately. Because like I think when he we talked to him before, he was like, yeah, you know, like I just really don't do this because people don't really want to do this stuff anymore. It's like I just don't really have the chance to do much of it. It's just like it's all visual effects now. It's that sad. <laughs>
0: Well, I like that you pulled this one out of the vault because what Carter Smith didn't talk about on his episode that we released earlier this week, he didn't talk too much about the practical effects in Swallowed, but they're really good. Like they're really good. So I think that's like a really cool continuity that you pulled out here. It's like if someone were to watch Swallowed and then listen to this throwback from the vault episode that you can't hear anywhere else, then they could kind of draw their own inferences for themselves.
1: Yeah, totally. And, you know, for a lot of the new listeners, you're going to hear Timothy. Uh, For the first time, because he did this interview with me. So yeah, just for you guys uh, who maybe don't know, Timothy was the original co-host of the show. Left at episode 181, and now Liz. I think you've done more episodes than uh, than Timothy, or close to. That's yeah, nice. that's pretty nutty. Okay, well, you know what else is really nutty? That you can email us or send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at and, and, you know, we, we get emails, which is lovely, but, you know, we're always looking for more. So if you guys got some stuff to tell us, some throwback, you know, a review of the throwback episodes or... Whatever input on something, let us know. And finally, you can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. And you can also, you know, be number four on iTunes reviews this year. We have three. 2023 iTunes review. You could be the fourth. If you go to iTunes and leave us a review, it could be you. Thanks to our bonus episode editor, Jeff Reimut, same editor as all the other episodes, for doing the editing. And thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome. And thanks to you all for listening to this bonus episode, and we'll talk to you on Monday.